0: sounded good. I always love it when Clyde leads us because he takes me back to my Baptist roots and it's good for my children to hear the good old days, the good songs. I was uh, looking through these songs. I Exalt Thee was written in 1977. I asked a few of our folks here today uh, where, how old they were in 1977. One was minus two, one was minus 17. You are not even a thought, my friend, but it just shows you Long before Canaan was born, we were singing about Jesus. Long before I was born, I found out uh, Joanne Byram was my age when she was singing, I exalt thee. And you're still here, singing away, praise Jesus. Well, we're starting a new series today to uh, enter into the Christmas season. Christmas, I said Christmas, didn't I? Easter, I'm so, want presents, I'm just kidding. Easter season. She's so sweet. She, from the back row, said, you missed it, Pastor. <laughs> so I thought I would just uh, talk to you about what I learned this week. Uh, we're we're going to enter into the Easter season this week called The Week That Changed the World. And here's what it's going to look like, just an overview. Uh, today is the triumphal entry and Great Choices of Songs Clyde. Uh, goes right along. Absolutely Uh, connects with the, the text I'll be using today. And then the two, that, that was Sunday, and then Monday was the temple cleansing. And you notice there's dates on here. More about that in a minute. And then Tuesday, there was the teaching of Jesus in the temple. He had to clean the temple, and then he could talk about God. And then Wednesday, April 1st. I love this. This is the greatest day ever. They go to plot against Jesus on April Fool's Day. That is funny. God has a sense of humor. And then Thursday, April 2nd, was the farewells of Jesus. Friday, that blessed day, like Clyde talked about, so ugly but so beautiful, the cross of Christ. Saturday, the tomb of Christ. Things are silent for some. And then Sunday, April 5th, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks And uh, just to think about what happens in a week, I got our paper today, just wanted to see what made the headlines in Vail Daily today, preserving our planet. Vail Global Energy Forum gathers energy, environmental leaders to discuss energy needs while protecting our world. That is what's news in Vail today. What about last Sunday, February 23rd? Uh, did you know there, there was a young man who died of a poisonous snake bite who was a pastor, he was a signs and wonders pastor, and he died. And as, as an effort to tell the world, they brought that same snake back to that service last uh, Sunday, February 23rd. Uh, Monday, February 24th, a worship pastor was on The Voice, of all things. Uh, found out he was a worship pastor and sang a song, and uh, the judges kind of mocked Christianity. Uh, Just made fun of it a little bit. Um, I think it was the same day that the drug lord in Mexico was caught, same day. So the voice is happening and major things are happening. Tuesday the 25th, there was a protest in Arizona, among other places, about the private company who refused to hire homosexuals. So now we're couching this whole thing. It was in the media all week. We're couching it's gay rights versus religious freedom. Uh, That's how we're couching it now. And who makes better parents? On Wednesday, a ban on gay marriage was struck down in Texas. On Thursday, Spike Lee apologizes after he went on a rant, um, basically defending um, some things there and he had gone on a rant and he had to apologize because uh, he was thinking a community was being racist. On the same time that gay marriage is now being equiv- equivocated to racism, if you oppose gay marriage, you you are some sense a racist. And I read four or five articles on Thursday. It's just out. That is just not logical. You can't go there, but it's out there. Friday, a man from Mississippi came back from the dead. He was in the embalming room. They thought he was dead, and he's alive. That was a perfect illustration for my entry into the Easter not. Christmas season. Saturday, March 1st. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but this is kind of the news now. Mysterious mass gunmen with no uh, insignia on their camo. They're just walking around the airport in uh, Crimea, Ukraine. Crimea, Ukraine. And they're just kind of monitoring. A lot of people think that's another country trying to send a message that they will not let the West take over. And what would be a week without sports? Last night, Wichita State becomes the first team in a decade to have a perfect season, 31-0. Way to go, Wichita State and Oklahoma State, of all teams, beat KU. That was major news. Did you just turn me down on that? (laughs) Uh, I I wondered what was going to happen there. But what's a week without sports, right? A lot has happened this week. Too much to keep up with. Some get caught up in the overabundance of information that we have. And they try to know everything, but only a few things are necessary. And if we're going to try to memorize what all went on in a week, I think all the info of one subject ought to be committed to memory. I think we ought to go back 1,980 years, 328 days. Pardon me for not knowing the minutes. But I think the week that started Sunday, March 29th, 33 A.D., through Sunday, April 5th, marked the most important week in human history. So important, we're going to take each day as a sermon for the next eight weeks. It's the week that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and it was the last time He would be there in His first Advent. Here is the incarnate Son of God to go and die for the sins of the world. And so He's coming back, amen? Dead or alive, we're going to be there for that. The dead will be raised first, and those of us who are still alive will be caught in the air. That's what Revelation says. That's what First Thess says. But we can look back in history. We can look back and see this Passion Week, and with careful study, uh, we can even look from human history outside the New Testament. Let me read you something here. Um, we have better historical documentation for Jesus than for the founder of any other ancient religion," said Edwin. Yam, Yamuchi of Miami University, a leading expert in ancient history, sources from outside the Bible, all say that people believed Jesus performed healings, was the Messiah, was crucified, and that despite his, this shameful death, his followers who believed he was still alive worshipped him as God. One expert documented 39 ancient sources that all believe more than 100 facts concerning Jesus' life, teachings, crucifixion, and resurrection— Seven secular sources in several early Christian creeds concern the deity of Jesus Christ as doctrine. This was definitely something that happened at that time. And so I'm not going to go to those seven sources, though if you want to know about them, I will find out. I'm going to go to the New Testament, and we're going to look at the New Testament Gospels. What you should have in front of you uh, is a kind of a synopsis of the triumphal entry it's a comparison you so you see what john said you see what matthew mark and luke the reason i put john on the left matthew mark and luke are what you're known as the synoptic gospels they all intersect and and overlap john is kind of set apart and on his own but he still has some things that overlap and so we're going to look at the gospels today we're going to look at the gospels over the next eight weeks and i want to begin with what what are the gospels i mean why the gospels The gospel are part of ancient literature. They're not just biography, statement of fact, but they are biography that's meant to persuade. They preserve history, and they persuade people with their theology. And I would argue that there's nobody who writes any biography that's not trying to promote something. As unbiased as they try to be, uh, people, when they write biography of their life, they're wanting to promote something. I think of the book, Born to Run, of a gentleman who goes down and runs with the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico. It wasn't just to report a great run that he had through the mountains with those Indians. He was trying to show you that you do not need to wear running shoes. All you need are leather strips and a leather bottom, and you should be able to run more efficiently, more effectively. And then hokas come out, 36 inches of of love right there to guard your feet. You know what's so funny about that book? He writes that book, and he runs it with other people who actually run in running shoes, and he gets on the bus, and he's making this promotion for uh, barefoot running, and his feet are all bloody. <laughs> I'm like, I know why your feet are bloody. It's because you didn't have shoes on. And so he had a purpose in his writing, and the Gospels have a purpose in their writing. You should have a verse up there from John 20. It's from the last, second to last chapter in the book of John. Uh, John 20, verses 30 and 31 say this, Now Jesus did many other things. And so the Gospels aren't there to record everything that Jesus did. He did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. And I think he says he does. At the end of John, that's not up there, but it just came to mind. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a big statement. But these were written so that anytime you see a so that in scripture you should pause what follows is the reason these were written and here's the reason that you may believe that jesus is the christ the messiah the one to come the son of god divine and the purpose of that is that you might by believing may have life in his name we are to believe to live and that is why the gospels are written who wrote the gospels There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, an original apostle, wrote to the Jews about King Jesus. Mark, a protege of Peter, wrote to the Romans about Jesus the servant. Luke, the doctor and companion uh, of Paul, wrote to the Greeks about Jesus the man. And John, the original apostle, uh, one of the original apostles of part of the inner circle, wrote to the world about Christ, the Son of God. Did these... Did these uh, really happen? Did these Gospels really happen? Are they credible? Aren't there contradictions? Well, You should see a chart up next about the manuscript evidence. How do we know for sure? There's a chart up here, and we pa- I passed it out in the Sunday school today, but the manuscript evidence that we have for the New Testament to show, was the New t- Testament something that was read, reliable, and around at that time, you see from this chart, can you see it? You can see clearly. Look at that. What this chart shows you is the author, the date that they wrote it, the earliest copy. There are absolutely no uh, original manuscripts from this time. All we have are copies, but then there's a time span between the original writing and the earliest copy, and we build our government off what some of what Plato wrote, and we have seven copies with 1,200 years in between those, the original writing and the first copy, In the New Testament, lately, a small piece of John's uh, gospel, we have found within 25 to 50 years of its original writing, and it's not just the only one. There are tons out there, 24,000 copies. And those copies, if you put them all together, most of our church fathers, you could get rid of all the Bibles uh, of that day and age, and you could just go with the church fathers, and you could almost recreate the New Testament. So they were writing this stuff down. They were reading it, and they were writing about it. They're some of the most incredible documents, most credible documents in ancient history. Uh, They differ enough so you know there's no collusion. That if you were to take this to a trial lawyer, and if they were to have the exact same thing, and everybody says the same thing, they'd think there's collusion, there's no way. But these differ by enough percentage to show that they are credible. And in, in addition, they don't just paint a pretty picture of the disciples. You see rivalry. You're going to see that and you're going to hear about it in context. Hey, uh, you think I can sit at your right hand? I mean, I've been with you for three years. We've been hanging out together. What do you say, you and me? Me, it's just like God, Jesus, and then Judd. What do you say? That's what they were doing. Seriously, that's what they were arguing about. Who's the greatest? There was rivalry. There was unbelief. If you read the Gospel of Mark and you miss that you'll get two phrases that are repeated over and over immediately 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 like 41 times and more often than not to the disciples not just to other people he'd say to the disciples oh you hard-hearted unbelieving people and so the, the they don't give us a great picture of us prideful cowardly peter i will go with you to the death today you'll deny me 3 times and then what do they do they all scatter another evidence that We're not just making this stuff up. This is record of history that you and I can believe to be true. Are those dates precise? They are. Looking to the future, you will never hear me stand up here and say Jesus is coming back in 1914, or Jesus is coming back in 1975, as some of our friends and other cults believe. We don't know. It's been told in the Bible. It's not for you to know the days or times that God is fixed with His own sovereignty. That you shall be my witnesses. But we can look back, we can absolutely look back, and we can get so precise that the gentleman uh, put together a book, they came up with these dates, that's where I got those dates. The final week of Jesus, they're precise on those dates. And I think it's absolutely hysterical that April Fool's Day, uh, 33 A.D. is when, and we'll look at this in three weeks, they're plotting to kill Jesus. That's called humor. You're supposed to laugh. You should be rolling right now. That's funny. Here we are plotting to kill the Son of God and that's the most foolish thing they that they could do but in the end it was the greatest thing they ever did. They, they and their evil as Acts as what you meant for evil, God meant for good. They, you and your evil according God's predetermined plan put Jesus on the cross. We can we can be for sure of these dates. And how do we read the Gospels? It is good to read them vertically from beginning to end. I think that's on the next side, straight through. John 1.1 to John uh, 21. It is good to read them like that. Very good to read them like that because John wrote from a particular perspective and he's trying to communicate something. Matthew, in all 28 chapters, he begins with the birth of Christ, ends with the great commission of Christ. He does it a little differently for the Jew, with a little Jewish flavor. Mark does it differently for Romans. Luke, the most detailed of all of them, for, for the Greeks, does it. So it's good to read them vertically, straight through. But it's also good, and that's why you have this handout, to read them horizontally, together, side by side, so you can pick up on the nuances. Now, I want to tell you that not some people go too far, And trying to make, when you read it uh, side by side, they try to fit everything in and they're just working too hard. Uh, I think of people who hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 and they try to connect that to Luke and they try to make these connections. Those were just two different sermons. If you look at them and take a big picture view, those were just two different sermons uh, written that Jesus did over a different amount of time. And that's okay. Jesus can preach the same thing twice, I've done it before. Trust me, if somebody calls me and says, hey, can you come over and do a sermon? I I went a couple years ago and did a sermon. I did a sermon there that I had just done here. That's pretty smart, huh? That's pretty wise. So, Jesus is a practical guy. And so you can't always try to mesh them together, but when they're tight and they're together and they're talking about the same thing as we see from the triumphal entry entry to the resurrection of Jesus, you can combine them, and that's what we're going to do during this series. I'm not going to promise it, but I hope to have every week something like this so you can follow along right there. You don't need to look up on the screen because we'll be bouncing back and forth between the four Gospels. But before we do that, I want to set the context because each Gospel gives a different context. In Matthew, in Matthew chapter 20, right before Matthew 21, people, Peter had just said uh, the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. What's in it for us? And he said, you, there's something for you. a a fruitful end, so to speak. But he tells about the parable of of those who worked in the vineyard. And he ends it with, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And the idea is, if you've committed to Jesus and you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years, praise the Lord and you've committed to Jesus. But if someone were to commit to Jesus today and walk 10 minutes, they may receive the same reward because that's how the owner has assigned it. And then Jesus in Matthew 20, for the third time, tells of his death. His disciples, and I, I resonate with them on this, they are kind of dense sometimes. They just didn't get it, and you'll even see it today. They didn't remember this until he had resurrected. Third time, I'm going to die. And then you have uh, James and John, their mother, come up. And, uh, hey, want to get good seats in eternity? Kind of like, hey, you guys are going to the Lego movie? Could you show up early and get us good seats? Could you do that? That's what his mother did, and in, 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 uh, I believe it was uh, Mark... We get more insight because it wasn't just Mama there, James and John were there too. Hey, yeah, so eternity's going to begin, uh, what do you say, we sit next to you, wouldn't that be cool? And then in the end of Matthew, which is great, he heals a blind man. Luke tells us about Zacchaeus, the wee little man who couldn't see, so he climbs a tree to see. And then he tells the parable of the ten minas. of what are you going to do with what God has given you. Mark, he teaches on divorce. He says, let the little children come to me. He talks about the rich young ruler. Again, he tells of his death the third time. And then in John, what is really setting up this triumphal entry, John tells us that there is a man, his friend named Lazarus, who has died. And it says in John... 11, when Jesus heard that John has died, he waited another few days. And it was the idea that he wanted to wait till people would know he was truly dead, so when he would raise him from the dead, they would see that this is the Messiah, the one who's come. And along the way, he tells Mary, or actually he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the one, this is a great verse. Everybody want to memorize the verse today? This is the verse where it says, Jesus wept a good verse. Two words, Jesus wept. You can memorize it. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. He actually had to call him by name, right? Because if he would have just said, come out, everybody would have come out. So he said, Lazarus, arise. And then there's this plot. They start plotting even now and Mary anoints him. And so you have this atmosphere of anticipation. Uh, Jews would show up a week early to the feasts. They would get there and they would they would set up camp. they have been traveling. They, it's like they would have their tents. And so all around Jerusalem, it's a, it's a, a festival. And so they're set up. The inns are full. There's an, there's an atmosphere of anticipation. Who is this guy named Jesus that's raising people from the dead? And so we begin. And I'm going to look at Matthew 21, uh, 1 to start. Now, when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, show you a little map where he is here. Uh, On the right there is where Jesus is. There's the Mount of Olives. It's about a mile or so from the city. And so here he is right outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, now watch this. This is where we have to read our gospel slowly. Go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And notice this, and he said, and he will send them at once. Here is your savior who knows everything. He knows exactly where the donkey is, and he knows exactly who's going to give them the donkey. He is the all-knowing king. His omniscience, he knew there would be a donkey. His assurance, he knew they would have success. Trust me. Matthew goes on to say this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burdens. And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. And that's in verse 6 of Matthew. But if you skip over and you look at Luke, he says, So those who were sent away found it just as he had told it. So Luke gets even more precise that Jesus said, you go do with it, and they found it. Here's the colt, here's the donkey, and they did what he asked. Why a donkey? Why is he riding on a donkey? Well, if we were to go back to 1 Kings and read 1 Kings 1, 33 and 34, you see David, when he's wanting Solomon to be established as king, and the king, that is David, said to them, take with you, the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, ride on my donkey. Have Solomon my son ride on the donkey and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. When there was a jockeying for who was going to be the true king, that's how 1st King begins, David the reigning king puts his son on the donkey and says, long live him as king. And so Jesus gets on a donkey because he wants to let the Jewish people know, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the Davidic messianic king. And you notice what it says, and I put the original Zechariah 9-9 up there. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. Remember that, shout aloud. Shout aloud. Because if you were to read these four texts together, there's loud crying, there's shouting. O daughter of Jerusalem, just to shout, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Here's the one you've anticipated. And here's how it describes him. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not only is he the all-knowing king, he is a humble king. That he could have come into Jerusalem any way he wanted But he understood to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, he would himself, the all-knowing king, submit to what the Word of God says. That should fascinate you. Jesus was driven by the Word of God. Jesus, knowing the Bible, lived out what the Bible said. Number one, he knew it, and he lived in light of it. And so when he comes back to verse 8 of Matthew, there's a crowd. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches From the trees and spread them on the road. Luke says it was the disciples and they were rejoicing with joy. And the crowds that went before him sat, and those that followed him were shouting. So you had the crowds here and he was coming, and so they were shouting as he passed. And you had these crowds anticipating as he was coming, saying, Hosanna, which means save now to the Son of David. They recognized him. This is the King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There's this anticipation. He's the one that's going to save us. But he's mounted on a donkey. He didn't come on a horse. And so how is he received? This is where we get to work John into the picture. Jesus knowing exactly how he was presenting himself. There were several different responses. And so we look at John. It says the next day after dinner, the next day after he had dinner with Lazarus. So you raise, how would you like to be Lazarus? Right? You're you're dead you get raised what do you think they do you think they talked at that dinner like yeah it's sorry dude you're going to have to do this again but i'll raise you again and we'll be in eternity forever that's crazy the large crowd that had come to the feast heard jesus was coming to jerusalem so we have this crowd that had witnessed lazarus resurrection they're coming in and if you look at 17 and 18 of John there on the left side of your page. It says, To the, cr- the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb had raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done the sign. And so you saw some who had, who had seen it and some who had heard about it. And so everybody's going to see who this is. And they're laying down palm branches. They're laying down uh, their coats. They're giving them the red carpet treatment. And notice it says, they were shouting out. John says they were crying out. Mark says in Mark 9, and they were shouting. They're fulfilling the scriptures. So you have these crowds, and among whom are the disciples. Go back to Matthew now, 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And in John 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And so even his disciples, these are the guys walking with him, weren't quite putting all the dots together. But they were praising the Lord. They were anticipating, here he comes to save the world. What's it going to look like? But you have others in that crowd who weren't so excited. Some were doubting. If you look at verse 19 of John, so the Pharisees said to one another, to one another, they're talking to each other, you see that you are gaining nothing. Why are we standing here? Look, the whole world has gone after him. We're not as powerful as we thought. Here's King Jesus. Here's this omniscient one. Here's this humble one. It's not looking good for us. And then, here's what they do. This is where you bring in Luke Luke tells us what they say to him. Verse 39, And some Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out, This is the moment of history. If I were to hush them, the temple, the rocks, the mountains, the whole world would cry out. He corrects the Pharisees and then Luke gives us the insight into Jesus' heart. He's a shepherd. Verse 41. And when he drew near this, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept because his friend Lazarus had died and he weeps here because the people are going to reject him. Why do I say that? Look at 42. Saying, Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. I have to do this. This is what's going to happen. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. Has not a partial hardening come upon the Israelites? Their eyes are blinded. Here it is. Jesus making that prophetic statement. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Titus, not the one that Paul wrote to, but Titus the general of Rome in AD 70 did this. He built up to the walls and they destroyed the city and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. He's weeping over the city. This is the very place that God should reign and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And those who are reading Luke, go I've heard that before in Luke and they would flip back as we will on the screen to Luke 1 When Zechariah filled with the holy spirit and prophesied saying blessed be the lord god of israel for he has visited and redeemed his people that's a fascinating phrase to me because it's past tense he has visited and re- you know what Luke 1 is that's the birth of jesus so he shows up on the scene and he said he has visited and redeemed his people. It's a done deal. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Here is Jesus the king. And then in 78 and 79, Zechariah goes on, Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give the light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. Do you see that connection? Here's Jesus at his birth. We know he was born to die. He heals the blind guy. Zacchaeus goes to see because they want to see this Jesus. And so that is all taking place outside of Jerusalem. And now if you look, our only reference to Mark, because it overlaps well with Matthew and Luke, look at verse 11. This is very matter of fact. This is just reporting history. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You think he walked in and he's like, should we? Should we do all this now? Because I'm getting ready to turn, turn over tables and cause a ruckus. Nah, it's late. Let's go back to Bethany. Because he understood. He, you know what he did? I'm just. This is a little divine uh, fun here. You know what he did? April 1st is coming up. I know a pastor who's going to really like that. So let's just wait. No, that's not what he did. Probably, he goes in, he sees it's late, he sees that it's, uh, people are leaving and departing. He said, let's just wait another day. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he leaves and he goes to Bethany with the twelve. It's where they stay the night. He enters, he observes, he exits. He's patient in his leading to the cross. Not me, I'm going to die. If I were Jesus, like, hey, let's go in and get this thing over with. Kill me. He understood what he was doing. And he walked in. Now I want you to see, if you've got your Bibles, turn to John 12, starting in verse 20, or it's up here on the screen. I want you to see another reaction. And so we ended our time of worship through song with I exalt thee, because that is what we do. And that is what they were doing when he entered into the city. As he was outside, they were laying down, red carpet, they were exalting him. So great song choice. And then here, in John 12, 20 through 26, we see, you know, we were singing about it, and you say, where is it in the Bible where that, when I survey the wondrous cross? Where is it, does it call me to give myself up and die? Right here. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks So these, these Greeks, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I love that. Very polite. Um, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. The hour has come. This is the book of John. If you were to go back into John 2, remember when he goes and he turns water into wine, his mother said, Do this. And he said, my hour has not come. And now he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he gives this teaching to these Greeks who wanted to know. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so we have this triumphal entry, and I want to give you, based on those seven verses, a triumphal application or challenge. And here it is. The next slide should show you that we need to be humble and submissive. Just like Jesus was humble and submissive. He went to die for you. He wants you to die to you. He wants you to die to yourself. We have to die to ourselves every day. And as Jesus was submissive to God, the word said this is how he was to come into the city. So that's how he came into the city. He wants us to follow himself. Not only are we to be humble, we are to be submissive. We're not just just be humble and submissive just because but because this is the king of kings and long before these gospels recorded this the psalmist recorded in psalm 2 something very similar it says now therefore in psalm 2:10 o kings be wise be warned o rulers of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling i love that serve with fear Reverence. God is God. He can do a whole lot of damage. Rejoice with trembling. It's in the Bible. Rejoice with trembling. Have joy, but have it on trembling knees because you serve the king of the universe. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Long before the gospels are even written, the psalmist is calling the kings of the nation at that time to bow to the Israelite king because that is where God was working through. And so here's Jesus, the king of kings, comes, and it's very similar. The first time he's mounted on a donkey and has no weapon. He's coming back on a horse, and he's got a sword. And the call is for us to humble ourselves and to submit now. And the third thing it's calling us to do is to serve. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, that will, there will be my servant also. We are called for a purpose. The world is the exact opposite. They aren't humble, they aren't submissive, and they aren't purposeful. They're prideful, they're rebellious, and they're entitled. We deserve this. I woke up this morning, I'm entitled to something. I live in America. Arrgh! Jesus calls us to the exact opposite of the world. We're to be humble, submissive, and purposeful. Humble, submissive servants of the Lord. Jesus even said, uh, you know, Mark 10 here, the context. I could have gone back. Jesus even said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many, enter in the triumphal entry. He makes a promise, if anyone serves me, the Father will, will honor him. That's the fourth thing. As Jesus was glorified, if we serve God, He will honor us. That's the triumphal promise. God will honor us. And Proverbs 15.33 ties this idea of humility and honor together, and that's where I want to end today. Proverbs 15.33 says this, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And you see that. Jesus coming, the omniscient, all-knowing King, humbly... And he will be honored. As Philippians says, he gave up what was his. He went to the cross, even death on the cross, and therefore God highly exalted him. Jesus came and received honor from God and from man. And the initial visit to the temple set the stage for the incredible events of the rest of the week. More on that next Sunday. Father, help us, enable us, You've given us the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and to comfort us. Help us to be those humble, submissive servants of Jesus. You are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Therefore, let us humble ourselves under your mighty hand. You will exalt us at the proper time. Your word says that. And let us cast all our anxieties on you. And I thank you for the promise because you care for us. Pray now as we go this week, Lord, we would live in the joy of knowing that our King has come, he has entered, and no one will stop his revolution. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who are helping.